it's July 14th, 2020. This is Paul Gerstein. Welcome to Pandemic Zen. I thought I would provide you with uh, my background before going any further. Uh, I am a medical doctor and I have 35 years of experience in the emergency room and retired about two years ago from that setting. My timing was impeccable as you probably can figure out. Um, and since then, I have been working part-time with uh, people who suffer from opiate use disorder, uh, utilizing medications in combination with other types of therapy to keep these folks sober. I also am a Zen practitioner and began my practice of Zen around the age of 19. And actually, by age 22, spent a year of residence in a Rinzai-style Zen monastery outside of Los Angeles. And then since then, uh, have studied with several Zen teachers, uh, the most notable of which I spent 30 years with. His name was Richard Clark. And with Richard, I was able to complete about four to five hundred koan, which included koans from the collection of the Muman Khan, the Hekigan Roku, uh, Book of Equanimity, and others. When Richard died in 2013, uh, he asked me before death to take over his teaching role with a group in Northampton, Massachusetts called the Living Dharma Center. And since that time, I have run several session, which are silent retreats, and given many talks, uh, about a hundred of which have been recorded and may be uh, shared on this platform in the future. Uh, just to be clear, I view my role as a Zen teacher as uh, far subservient to my role as a Zen student. No matter how many koans you have passed through, uh, revisiting any koan will open your mind in a fresh way and allow you to see something new, something different that you may have missed the first time around. It is in that spirit uh, that I talk to you at all about Zen practice. Now, in the setting of a global calamity, such as COVID-19, I thought it might be useful to folks to hear from someone who has a medical background, but also um, a training in mindfulness meditation and some understanding of approaches of Zen and Buddhism that might help uh, deal with this calamity. There's an overlap here. Uh, medicine is the science of human disease and therapeutics to heal the disease. Zen is the, one might say, science of intent observation of the observer, of the mind itself, with the aim of healing divisions that cause suffering. The key overlap is the word science. Now, what is science or the scientific method? Uh, 
The scientific method is founded upon the avoidance of blind belief. That is, believing things are a certain way despite any evidence to the contrary or in the absence of any evidence to support the belief. The scientific method involves intent and meticulous observation and the creation of theories or models of what might be going on that one always tests by trying to disprove the model. As long as the model withstands these serious attempts to disprove it, it's, it is held and is often found to be very useful until something uh, doesn't fit the model and then the model needs to be revised and even thrown out. And this is also true of Zen practice. Zen practice is founded upon a meticulous and sincere effort to observe closely and find out what is true, what is actual, and to undermine fixed beliefs that have no evidence to support them. It's done simply by turning the light of the mind inside and peering deeply into the very source of mind. Now, it also involves paying attention to one's everyday life, the so-called outside world, to find out what the truth is there as well. Is this world truly outside me, separated from an entity with characteristics inside, uh, and standing on its own outside, so-called existing, standing outside with its own separ separate existence? Now we can say much more about this analogy, but uh, perhaps we should move on at this point and talk about what hasn't changed in the past several weeks since my last talk. Well, and uh, this is going to have quotes around it and said in an ironic fashion. Uh, we have learned, and this hasn't changed, that the COVID-19 pandemic is a hoax, that it was cooked up and created by the Chinese, that the Democrats have picked up it, the hoax and run with it as a way of harming Donald Trump's re-election campaign, that uh, COVID-19 is just going to magically disappear one of these days. And 99% of people who get it are completely fine. They have absolutely no harm from the illness. So uh, let's take a look at the flip side. What has changed? Well, what has changed because it's based on observation and science and is held lightly until better evidence is available to refine the viewpoints what has changed is our scientific understanding of COVID-19. There's still a lot we don't know. There's uh, many mysteries to this virus, how it uh, infects you, how it replicates, what uh, it does to the human body, and how to properly treat it and heal it.
epidemiology is the branch of medicine that deals with epidemics and pandemics and infectious diseases in the general population. And it is based on observation and mathematics, uh, creating mathematical models that are uh, a prediction of what might happen given uh, plan A versus plan B versus plan C. So what we have learned about COVID-19 is that it's R0 is higher than we originally thought. Now let's just talk about R0. R0, or R with a zero beneath it, is an epidemiological term uh, based on mathematics that predicts the average number of people that a single infected person will infect. Now, this R0 assumes a few things. First, it assumes that the population is universally susceptible. That's true of COVID-19 because it's a novel virus. Number two, there's no uh, vaccine against it. And number three, that no efforts are made to mitigate the infection. Mask wearing, social distancing, etc. So no efforts are made and this way we can predict what the R0 for any given epidemic is. So how will it spread throughout society when everybody is susceptible and nobody is preventing it. So we originally thought that the R0 of COVID-19 was somewhere between two and three, meaning the average infected person will themselves infect another two to three people. Now you can see how rapidly something can spread with an R0 of let's say 2.2 or 2.5 every few days it's doubling and doubling and doubling and this uh, becomes parabolic so as time goes by the curve becomes steeper and steeper until it's almost like a straight line up now what we've learned is that the actual R0 for COVID-19 is more likely to be around 5.7 that's an enormous difference so if we make no attempts to mitigate and because most of our population is still susceptible, perhaps only 1% of the world's population has been infected with COVID-19 and we don't even know if infection confers uh, immunity, that means that each person on average will infect another five to six people. So you can see how rapidly everything can spread when no attempts are made at mitigation. Now mitigation in the absence of anything that can eliminate the disease including vaccines or very effective therapeutics is the only tool we have. It's the only weapon in our arsenal. The only thing we can do at this point is prevent the spread which is a way of lowering the R0 or the infectivity of the virus. And doing that is called bending the curve. So rather than the curve becoming parabolic upwards, we are able to start to flatten it out and even 
begin to have it head down. And in countries where mitigation attempts were effective and also assiduous, uh, the R0 has been brought down to below 1. Now, when the R0 is below 1, meaning that the average person will infect less than one other person, let's say it's 0.5, it'll take two infected people to infect only one person. Then the curve is going in the opposite direction, it's going down, and eventually the number of cases will go close to zero. That is not the case in the United States. Now, what we've also learned in the past few weeks is that the disease is uh, more effectively spread in indoors, closed environments, particularly when many people are at close quarters, and that it's less likely to be spread outdoors, perhaps due to the dilutional effect of breezes and the large volume of air, and also perhaps some external factors like UV light from the sun killing the virus. We don't know exactly, but we do know that being outdoors is less likely to spread this virus and therefore lowers the infectivity of the virus. Another thing that we have learned is wearing a mask is very effective. Wearing a mask, its major effectiveness lies in the prevention of spread from one person who has the virus to another that doesn't have the virus because it interferes with droplet transmission. So we know those two things now, wearing a mask, maintaining distance, uh, when we get together with others, preferably outdoors. And there are several other things that we can go into later. Now, what else have we learned about this COVID-19 virus? We've talked about infectivity. How about uh, the term virulence. So how serious is the infection? Um, how likely is it to cause harm? So this is the meaning of virulence. What we've learned is that uh, the virus is far more virulent than we originally thought. Let's go into that. When we look at the virulence of COVID-19 scientifically, that is with honest, close observation, we find out information that undermines a primary belief of those who are refusing to wear masks and feel that we should open up the marketplace as quickly as possible and that this whole thing is a hoax. We are undermining their belief that 99% of people who get this are fine and won't suffer harm. So what is the actual scientific view of the virulence of COVID-19? Well, this is from uh, the New England Journal of Medicine's Journal Watch, and they're reporting on a research letter in JAMA, a Journal of American Medical Association. And it goes as follows, nearly 90% of people discharged from the hospital with COVID-19, and I should just interject here, 
that 20% of people who get COVID-19 will at some point require hospitalization. That's one in every five. Nearly 90% of those people who are discharged from hospitalization, so we're not even including people who are so sick that they couldn't be discharged or died in the hospital, 90% report persistent symptoms two months later. So this is not a benign disease. It's not like the flu. It's not like a cold. It has persistent symptoms in 90% of the people who are sick enough to require admission after catching COVID-19. And those people requiring admission make up 20% of the total number of infected persons. So I'll go on here with the report. Researchers surveyed roughly 150 patients who were discharged after recovering from COVID-19 in Rome. At a mean 60 days after symptom onset, only 13% were completely free of COVID-19 symptoms. Roughly a third had one or two symptoms while over half had three or more symptoms. Some 44% said that they had worsened quality of life. Fatigue, shortness of breath, joint pain, and chest pain were the most commonly reported persistent symptoms. Now this report says nothing about people who never went to the hospital. We uh, don't have a study that tells us exactly how virulent the disease is for people who either didn't need to go to the hospital or don't have access to a hospital. But we can bet that there is uh, a significant number of folks who will have persistent symptoms. Some of these symptoms may last for a long time or even forever because we know the virus damages organs and especially the lungs and that some of that damage may be so severe that it won't completely heal. What else have we learned about COVID-19 in the past several weeks? Well, we've learned that it is not merely a respiratory infection, but it is an infection that includes the lining of blood vessels. So it includes a vascular component, which can lead to blood clotting in the body and as a result, strokes and heart attacks. So this uh, virus is turning out to be far more virulent than we hoped. How can we get this message to those who uh, believe in conspiracy theories and who believe the things that Donald Trump and his supporters are spewing, mainly that this is a benign condition like a cold or the flu and that it mostly won't hurt anybody. Why is it so important that we get this information to those people? Well, the reason why is that when there's a significant number of people who are not practicing social distancing and wearing of masks and mitigation, and especially when uh, leaders such as governors and mayors and presidents are advocating the opening up of schools, restaurants, bars, and other communal uh, locations uh, before we have actually flattened the curve are going to create an even worse problem, a more extensive epidemic that will eventually uh, 
uh, suck in those of us that are trying to stay safe and uh, practicing social distancing. So the more prevalent the virus is in our communities, and it will become rapidly more prevalent as we're now seeing. For example, this past weekend, there was a record 100,000 new diagnosed cases of COVID-19 in the United States. And that's just based on the testing that's being done. You could probably multiply that by three because I think it's reasonable to assume that only one out of three people with the virus ever gets tested, perhaps even fewer. So if it's spreading that rapidly, it's going to be much harder for people, even who practice social distancing and the wearing of masks, to avoid getting the infection. So the false beliefs that have been propagated in various forms of media and by leaders, including Donald Trump, has made it very difficult to get people to comply with mitigation attempts, even if we try to enforce them legally and make rules and punish rule breakers. It's really become a culture war, and there have been violent interactions uh, when people are asked to wear a mask entering a restaurant, etc. So we must educate everybody. We have to get the information that is gleaned from a scientific approach to this infection into the minds of ordinary Americans to counteract the propaganda that they've been subjected to. We're all in this together. A famous physicist, Neil deGrasse Tyson, once said something along these lines. He said, uh, the wonderful thing about science is that it's true whether you believe in it or not. And uh, here's another quote. This is from the Dalai Lama. He said, if science contradicts a teaching in Buddhism about the natural world, then Buddhism must change. So the key here is just to let go of belief. Let go of what you could call magical or wishful thinking. Because it doesn't really change what's true and only blinds you to the best courses of action. In the practice of Zen, not only is the art of intent observation taught and practiced and held in high regard, but also the ability to put what you believe into doubt and to put everything essentially into doubt. So here's the key thing. When you combine observation and intent inquiry, mindfulness and doubting. This is how to undermine false beliefs and move forward towards a clearer view of what is true. So anyway, we will end there today and pick it up next time.
Miss Ohio She's running around with a rag top down She says I want to do right but not right now I'm gonna drive to Atlanta And live out this fantasy Running around with a rag top down Yeah, I wanna do right but not 